You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. that knows that as Tolkien once said, not all those who wander are lost, but has definitely been stuck in this section of Ikea for like four hours. Please send help. And meatballs. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And it's beginning to look a lot like Hanukkah, literally the day this comes out, which has nothing to do with this episode, but it's too early for Christmas, which also has nothing to do with this episode. We kind of done the the big holiday heavy hitters, by which I mean the Nutcracker and whatever Charles Dickens felt like spitting out on a given day. So uh, three years in, December rolls around and Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, Pilgrim's Progress. That's not a Christmas thing at all. Yes, there's nothing Christmas about. You don't know what the Pilgrim's Progress is about. <laughs> in Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, I don't think that's a required reading in thing. Die Hard. That's not a book. The novelization. Oh God. We're just doing jazz, baby. This will be our next to last episode of the year, and uh, the, the words penultimate. And for well, why use three words when one will suffice? You could use no words and let me get through this. This is an educational podcast. I hadn't noticed. For our last episode, we need your help. Our next episode will be one of our famous Ono Lit Class Q and A episodes. Why are they famous? I don't know. I just decided. It's the time when you can ask us whatever strange, burning questions lie in the darkness of your heart. And send those questions to onolitclass at gmail.com, or to at onolitclasspod on Twitter, or onolitclass.tumblr.com, or in our Facebook group, or on our Patreon at patreon.com slash onolitclass. Or just scream it into the wind. We'll hear you. We'll know. But you need to do it by December 17th. Ask about Art of the Deal. I mean, if you really want to, you can. Anyway, today's episode, not much of a winter wonderland, but a wonderland nonetheless. Wipe that Cheshire grin off your face, it's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. First published in 1865 and generally just shortened to Alice in Wonderland, the novel that launched a thousand Hot Topic stores, unfortunate tattoo sleeves, and edgelord reinterpretations of what if Wonderland was like real dark and fucked up and Alice was on drugs and also hot but in like a slutty goth way. Hi, I'm Todd McFarlane, deeply horny creator of Spawn. Here's the thing, I personally cannot stand Alice in Wonderland, mostly in present pop cultural form because it's fucking annoying and I'm old and I hate fun, I guess. Then I read the original in college and you know what? I also hated that, but the genesis of the book from something that's mostly comprised of really irritating cross-language puns to something that in present form is at least like 85% fetish fuel is fascinating. People are just absolutely incapable of making Alice in Wonderland stuff without making it wildly, aggressively horny. Like most things. What do you mean most things? Most things are made to be horny. 
Rule 34. Well, but uh, no, but like, there's something about Alice in Wonderland that sets off people's fucking horny alarms, which is why you never see Alice as a kid anymore. It's always an aged up one. Um, Even when she's not like whoever happens to be making it walking, talking blow up doll, like in the Tim Burton movies. And yeah, you could argue that the reason for that might be that there's horniness all the way down as the subject of whether or not Carol was a creepy fucking child toucher is as often debated as whether or not the book is all about drugs. Ooh. Well, I can tell you that regrettably, definitively, the book is not about drugs. It's definitely about nerd shit. The pervert stuff is a little bit more opaque, but that'll be RJ's department. This is not to say there aren't some decidedly weird motifs hiding in the book, but as always, we'll get there. Horniness, or otherwise, one cannot deny the massive, massive impact that Alice in Wonderland has had on the fantasy genre in the 150 plus years since it was published. It's never been out of print, it's been adapted into literally fucking everything, and it's even embedded in our lexicon with phrases like, going down the rabbit hole. RJ, you ever read the book? Nope. (laughs) You uh, ever watched the Disney movie? Yup. Remember anything about it? She was blonde. Had a nice little white and blue outfit. Had a big bow in her hair. These are facts. Um, I mean, they got the ride at the park. The the hatter spin. The teacups? Yeah. The hatter spin? Yeah, he spins around. <laughs> and you get sick. You get dizzy. You do. Yeah, and when you vomit, you vomit on the car next to you, and then it just all falls apart. Are, are you speaking from experience? Uh, that's something that happened in some movie. I see. Yeah. One kid vomits, vomits on some other kid, and everyone's vomiting. Um, so I read this for some Victorian literature class in college. I don't remember which one. I took, like, five, because that's what happens when you get an undergraduate degree in British literature and you hate yourself. I saw the Disney movie when I was a little kid, and the biggest takeaway I got from it was being so emotionally upset by the walrus and the carpenter scene that I never watched it again until I was, like, I think in high school, when my friend who was extremely hot topic, Alice in Wonderland, uh, made me. So do you know what the Walrus and the Carpenter bit is? Nope. The only Disney movie that put me off as a kid was Pinocchio. Yeah, Pinocchio is upsetting. So the Walrus and the Carpenter bit, which I'll go into a bit here because we're not going to talk about it because technically it's in the sequel book Through the Looking Glass, which I'm not going to talk about because you can't fucking make me. But they, they get combined a lot in adaptations. So it's in the movie. So it's this thing where Walrus and the Carpenter see some oysters, and in the book it's not nearly as upsetting. It's just like, hey, some oysters, and we're gonna eat them, okay? In the Disney movie, it's like way freakier, where they see like these little baby oysters, and they're like, come walk with us, and the mother oyster is like, no, you're going to eat my baby oysters, and they're like, nah. And the Carpenter like gets distracted doing something, and the walrus, like, eats all the little baby oysters, like, off screen or something. And for whatever reason, when I was a little kid, that fucking made me so upset and, like, sad. <laughs> I don't know. Like, and I couldn't fucking watch the movie. I was like, no, that's all I remember about that fucking movie. <laughs> so, we're, we're late for a very important date, so, RJ, tell we us. We are? Yes. I don't get it. Why don't you tell us about the weirdo who invented Wonderland and subsequently made us all have to put up with people who buy doormats that say we're all mad here in front of their houses and think that counts as a personality. Yes, I am the fun police. Charles Lutwig Dogson 
was born January 27th, 1832, and died January 14th, 1898. Well, here is where I would have given you some fun and zany holidays that are celebrated on those days. But Megan told me off mic, in private, that we're no longer allowed to discuss fun and zany holidays like World Pumpernickel Day. So bring your complaints directly to Megan. Instead, what we're going to put in this spot is a Financing with RJ special, Understanding the Power of Compound Interest, brought to you by Compound W. Have warts? Ew. No, wait, I mean, uh, Compound W has your back, by which I mean your warts, by which I mean it can get rid of those warts for you. Find it at your local markets, I guess. What did I do to deserve this? Just don't drink bleach, okay? (laughs) Anyway, compound interest is strong. How strong? Well, let me give you an example. So old Lutwidge was born in 1832. Lutwidge? Yeah. Are you pronouncing this right? Yeah. I don't believe you. I mean, you already mispronounced his last name. No, I'm never going to say it again, so that one's gone. How do you pronounce it? Was it not Dodgson? Oh, I guess so. <laughs> so, what which was born in 1832. Let's say you deposited $100 in 1832, and every month you added $100 to your account. And we assume a modest rate of return of 5%. Just so you know, the average stock market returns average about 8 to 10% annually over the long term. Well, all these years later, your $100 initial deposit and the $100 you put in monthly would amount to... This is because I said in the last one, are you ever going to bring back financing with RJ? So you got a couple options here. Invent a time machine and convince your great, 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 great grandparents to make a $100 contribution to you every month and make sure it's done in perpetuity until today. Or start saving for your own retirement today. Does this have anything to do with the life of the man who wrote Alice in Wonderland. For every $100 you deposit today, and for every $100 you add on a monthly basis, assuming a 5% return in 30 years, each $100 will turn into $82,302. So start harnessing the superpower Marvel didn't want you to know about. Compounding. That's all the time we have here today on this Financing with RJ. So remember, love yourself, love others, but most importantly, love the feeling of money in your pocket. And this holiday season, remember, the best gift you can give is maybe to your own retirement account. Back to Charles Lutwidge, I'm guessing now, Dodgson. What would you call him, Lutwidge? World Pumpernickel Day, huh? Yeah, but you didn't want to hear that. He came from a long line of Charles Dodgson's. Man, I lied. We said his name quite a bit. In fact, he was the fourth. His great-grandfather, grandfather, father, and him all carried the same name. And what a name it is. Daddy Wattwidge was known for being mathematically gifted and was so thought to have a bright academic future ahead of him after graduating from university with a double first degree. Basically imagine double majoring in undergrad and earning the highest honors on both degrees. But instead of pursuing that career, he made googly eyes as his first cousin Francis and made 11 babies with her and became a country parson in the Anglican church instead. Gross. As happens. As you can imagine... Mama Lutwidge was kind of focused on recuperating from having the kids and then raising the kids. Lutwidge was born in All Saints Vicarage at Daresbury, Cheshire, near Warrington. Because England, 
During what which is formal years, his father, due to his service in the church, was given a very spacious rectory in Cofton Tees. And I it, love it when I have a good spacious rectory. Yeah, and it was made the family home for 25 years. You got to put a family of 13 somewhere. Eventually, Daddy Lutwidge rose to the position of Archduke and did his best to instill his religious fervor in his kids, including little Lutwidge. In 1844, when he was 12, he was sent away to grammar school, which he was not much a fan of, in part because he was not the social type due to a stammer that he developed early in his childhood. Throughout his life, he felt he was slighted or bullied due to his stammer. The thing is, there were very conflicting accounts about his stammer. Some people say he only stammered around adults and never around children. However, some adults say they never noticed he had a stammer, and there are some kids who specifically remembered Lutwidge having one around them when they were young. So who knows? After a few years away at school, Lutwidge wrote, quote, I cannot say that any earthly considerations would induce me to go through my three years again. I can honestly say that if I could have been secure from annoyance at night, the hardships of the daily life would have been comparative trifles to bear. Look, n- nobody had a good time in middle school. Literally no one. Lutwidge never claimed that he was specifically bullied, but did say that older children did bully younger ones. A family member of his said, quote, Even though it's hard for those who have only known him as a gentle and retiring Don to believe it, it is nevertheless true that long after he left school, his name was remembered as that of a boy who knew well how to use his fist in defense of a righteous cause. Beyond kicking ass and taking names, Lutwidge was also pretty good at the whole scholarship thing as well. One of his teachers, get a lot of this name and title, mathematics master R.B. Mayer said, quote, I have not had a more promising boy at his age since I came to rugby, the school. At the age of 18 in 1850, Lutwidge went off to Oxford, specifically Christ Church, where he earned first-class honors in mathematics moderations just two years later. What a nerd. Two years after that, he obtained first-class honors in the final honors school of mathematics and graduated first in his class. Nerd. He hung around and continued to study and even teach until he failed an important scholarship due to lollygagging around. Wattwidge was known for being smart as a tack, but also had a hard time staying focused on his studies, and he admitted as much. During his time at university, his mother passed away at 47 due to brain inflammation, which was either likely meningitis or a stroke. But that's how it was in the 1800s. Your brain done got inflamed. Yep. Lutwidge also battled his own health battles during his young years as well. When he was 17, he suffered a severe case of whooping cough, which was likely responsible for his chronically weak chest for the remainder of his life. He was six feet tall, described as asymmetrical, and others noted that he moved in a very stiff and awkward manner. Given these health issues, in addition to his stammer, some have speculated that Lutwidge Dodgson caricatured himself as the dodo in the story at the heart of today's episode. Alice in Wonderland, as he would sometimes introduce himself as Dodgson due to his stammer. While these issues did hold him back, they did not debilitate him. He was still known for being a good entertainer. He was known for being able to sing tolerably, and that was in quote marks. Hey, that's about as much as most of us can hope for. And was known for being particularly good at charades. If you gotta be good at something, might as well be charades. He was able to turn these charades and other social skills into having a good network of friends in the literature and art world, which would help propel his writing career. From a young age, Lutwidge wrote short stories and poetry. He began publishing his work when he was 22 in 1854, 
in a family magazine known as Mishmash. It was in this publication that the first version of Jabberwocky, the poem that served as an inspiration for later Alice stories, was published. As his literature began to receive notice and recognition, Lutwidge decided it was time for him to get a pen name. Lutwidge wanted to keep his and his family's privacy, and so he did not want to put his name out there all the time. He put together a list of names for his publisher to choose the one that the publisher thought was best. The publisher is the one who chose the name we all know Lutwidge by today, Lewis Carroll. The way Lutwidge created the name is by taking his name, Charles Lutwidge, and Latinizing it into Carolus Ludovicus. He then anglicized the name into Carol Lewis and then flipped the order. From then on, his writings were published under the name Lewis Carroll. His next works were published in the Comic Times and The Train, as well as smaller magazines such as the Whitby Gazette and the Oxford Critic. Most of his early works were humorous and sometimes satirical. Despite the success in having his work published, Lutwidge negged himself. He wrote in July 1855, quote, I do not think I have yet written anything worthy of real publication, in which I do not include the Whitby Gazette or the Oxonian Advertiser, but I do not despair of doing so someday. Way to shit on your publishers, my dude. I know. Like, jeez. <laughs> yeah, I guess these assholes publish me, but, like, they don't count. Like, better hope they're not reading it. In 1856, the new dean, Harry Liddell, of Christ Church, where Lutwidge was still hanging around, arrived at the school with his family, which included his wife and children, including his daughter, Alice. Lutwidge became good friends with Liddell's wife and began going on rowing expeditions with the children. It was during one of those rowing trips that he told the tale that would become Alice's adventures underground to Alice Liddell. She immediately begged him to write the tale, which he did. The tale would eventually be revamped and worked into what we know today. Many people have speculated that Lutwidge wrote this tale for Alice Liddell. Not only did he tell her the tale during a rowing trip and then write it at her request, but he gave her a manuscript that was completely handwritten and illustrated by him a few years later. There is also no doubt that Alice and the whole Liddell family had a prominent role in his life at the time. Further, at the end of Through the Looking Glass, there's an acrostic poem in which the first letter of the line spells something, and guess whose name it spells out? Yeah. Critics also speculate that there are other clues and allusions sprinkled throughout the text. Lutwidge claimed that his, quote, little heroine was not based on any real child, but rather he sprinkled in references about and dedicated his work to many young girls and his acquaintance, including Gertrude Chataway. He befriended Gertrude when she was nine and he was 43. The two of them corresponded and took seaside holidays through her 20s. His relationships with young women is all a bit eccentric, to put it nicely. Young women? <laughs> Girls. I was going to say, are we going to call a nine-year-old a young woman? I'm putting it nicely. Do we want to put it nicely? <laughs> no. There's no smoking gun. Or maybe there's no corpse. There might be a smoking gun. But they never found a body. Lutwidge also began to expand his artistic expression to include photography. While many of his photography studies were of men, women, boys, and landscapes, and some of his favorite subjects also included skeletons, dolls, dogs, statues, paintings, and trees. Over half of the prints that are attributed to him today that still exist are of young girls, including photographs of Alice Waddell. Some of the photographs include nude children. It is noted that supposedly all the pictures of children, nude or not nude, were taken with the parents in attendance, and many of the pictures were staged in the Waddell Garden due to how great it looked and how the light just shone on through. Some of the more popular subjects he 
did get to sit for uh, photographs include Michael Faraday, the cage guy, Alfred Tennyson, the Lord of Poetry guy, and Lord Salisbury, the state guy. The state guy. <laughs> yep. So, the nude kids, though. Yeah. Those are those who still exist today. Art. Yeah, I mean, the little bit of reading I did, the justification was like, look, there's context here. It was the Victorian times. Apparently, everyone was taking pictures of nude children. It was the thing to do. And I was like, oh? All in all, it's estimated he took over 3,000 photographs and developed them himself. Only about 1,000 still exist today as many have been lost or otherwise destroyed. Speaking of destroyed, one reason that Lutwidge's relationship with children is so heavily scrutinized beyond the evidence we do have is because of the evidence we do not have. Lutwidge was known for keeping a diary throughout his life. In fact, he wrote 13 full diaries throughout his life. However, four complete volumes and around seven pages are missing from that collection. The years that are missing run from 1853 to 1863, right during the heart of all this. From a couple years before he got to know the Waddells, through the height of his publication prowess, from when he was 21 up until he was 31. To say there are suspicions as to why these are the volumes missing is to put it mildly. Yes, Cassius. There are, of course, the scandalous theories about his relationship with children as to why these volumes are missing. Others speculate that this period overlapped with the time that Lutwidge began suffering great mental and spiritual anguish and confessing to an overwhelming sense of his own sin, and so these volumes may have been disappeared to protect him and his legacy for the shame of completely unrelated reasons. Confessing to his own sin of what? <laughs> Being neurotic. <laughs> This time period was also when he composed his extensive love poetry, leading to speculation that the poems may have been autobiographical, which would be proven if we had access to his diaries. One particular bit of speculation is that of the specific pages that are missing. So there's one volume that we have the volume, but like around people speculate about seven pages that were ripped out. Oh, geez. On a very specific day. So one particular bit of speculation is that of these specific pages that are missing and have been torn out, hide the fact that he proposed to Alice Liddell mm. when she was 11 and he was 31. <laughs> but some say this is preposterous and point to other writings that are at least speculated to be from around the same time or were at least written when the seven pages were ripped out and destroyed that the real gossip was about the relationship between Lutwidge and the Waddell's family governess, as well as about his friendship with Alice's older sister, Lorina, who would have been 14 at the time. That's not much better. Whatever occurred on the dates that the torn out and missing pages cover, we know shortly thereafter that there was a falling out between Lutwidge and the Waddell clan. Hmm. So... Either he was horny for the governess, which would have been the most acceptable thing because she was presumably an adult, or he was going after their fucking kids. We will never know what which is real thoughts and feelings on the matter, nor will we know exactly what happened during this time between the pages. One biographer, Morden Cohen, speculates that what which is, quote, sexual energy sought unconventional outlets. Wow, that's one way to put it. Jeez. <laughs> We cannot know to what extent sexual urges lay behind Charles's preference for drawing and photographing children in the nude. But we could maybe make some guesses. He contended the preference was entirely aesthetic. 
But given his emotional attachment to children, as well as his aesthetic appreciation of their forms, his assertion that his interest was strictly artistic is naive. He probably felt more than he dared to acknowledge even to himself. Cohen adds that Lutwidge, quote, apparently convinced many of his friends that his attachment to the nude female child form was free of any eroticism, although, quote, later generations looked beneath the surface. Biographer Catherine Robson refers to Carroll as, quote, the Victorian era's most famous or infamous girl lover. Just call a goddamn pedophile. I report the facts and takes, and you decide. 1865, when Lutwidge was 33, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was published. The book was a huge commercial success around the world. Queen Victoria enjoyed the book so much that she ordered that Lutwidge dedicate his next book to her. Unfortunately for the Queen, his next book was a scholarly mathematical volume entitled An Elementary Treatise on Determinants and, and was published under his own name, not his pen name, and does not include a dedication to the Queen, but some people say he did present the math book to her, although he denied doing so. In 1868, when Lutwidge was 36, his father passed away while he was working on the sequel Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There. Critics speculate that the sequel is a bit darker because Lutwidge's depressive state took over due to the passing of his father. Lutwidge did branch out from Alice and published The Haunting of the Snark, a fantastical nonsense poem exploring the adventures of a bizarre crew of nine tradesmen and one beaver who set off to find the snark in 1876. In 1895, at 63, 30 years removed from his greatest successes, Lutwidge attempted a comeback with Sylvie and Bruno a two-volume tale about fairy siblings. This did not meet the same fanfare as Alice and only sold 13,000 copies. But which is the life really did not change much after the height of Alice. In fact, it may be more striking how little actually changed despite his growing wealth and fame. He continued to teach at Christ Church until 1881 when he was 49, a nice early retirement. He must have made some wise and early investments and remained in residence at Christ Church until his death. He made few public appearances, and when he did, it was usually involved with Alice in Wonderland, like going to see a musical version. In late 1897, Lutwidge contracted the flu and passed at 65 from pneumonia that developed as a result on January 14, 1898. He was buried at the local church. In 1982, his great-nephew unveiled a memorial stone to him in Poets' Corner, Westminster Abbey. And in January 1994, an asteroid, 6984 Lewis Carroll, was discovered and named after Lutwidge. Before, where, where do you rank that re-stamp? Asteroid's good. That's forever. You know, stamps only run for a certain time. It's true. And plus it was 69. Hey. Hey, nice. Before his death, Lutwidge described in his diary how he suffered from migraines and what is now considered some form of epileptic seizures. Lutwidge wrote that he suffered from migraines with aura. Some biographers speculate that he suffered from what has been termed Alice in Wonderland Syndrome, which is when a migraine with aura causes the afflicted person to sense objects are suddenly changing size. For example, an afflicted person may look at a basketball and perceive it as if it were a size of a golf ball. Other biographers say, though, that there is no hard evidence that Lutwidge suffered from this affliction, and thus no evidence that inspired him to catalog it in his stories. What are the odds? They name a disease after his writings, and then he maybe actually suffer from that disease never heard of that. That sounds fucking awful. Yeah. As for his epileptic seizures, some biographers have suggested that Carol may have suffered from temporal lobe epilepsy, in which consciousness is not always completely lost, but altered 
and in which symptoms mimic many of the same experiences that Alice has in Wonderland. Between all this, though, what which managed to actually invent some things along the way? Guy was busy. Writer, mathematician, and inventor. He is said to have created an early form of the game that has become Scrabble. He is also credited for creating or at least heavily popularizing the word ladder, aka word doublet, a kind of brain teaser in which you change one letter at a time to form new words. For example, to get from cat to dog, you can go cat, cot, cog, dog. He made that happen. God, I want to bully him. He also made a nightograph, a device that allowed people to write in the dark in the middle of the night so they did not need to get up to jot something down. Other credits include creating a rule for finding the day of the week for any date, a means for justifying right margins on a typewriter, a steering device for a type of tricycle, fairer elimination rules for tennis tournaments, a new kind of postal money order, a kind of double-sided tape, and a device for helping bedridden people to read books placed sideways. Man was busy. Jeez. So the next time you think about old Lutwidge, don't just think about Alice, or the other Alice, or the mystery surrounding his life, or the hot takes you might have about him. But also think about a nice, relaxing game of Scabble. Fuck, I don't have an R. The end. Don't think about the fact that he might have been a pedophile. Think about the fact that he made Scrabble. Did he touch children? (laughs) Well, we'll never know. (laughs) But we know he did make Scrabble and was a fucking nerd. And he took some photographs. He did did take a bunch of photographs of naked kids. But apparently, so did a bunch of other Victorian people. Oh, boy. No, not boy. Girl. Usually girl. Look, he was probably a fucking pervert. Why would the littles, Liddells, whatever, stop fucking wanting to hang out with him? What, after their governess? I hope that's what he did. (laughs) I mean, people also say, speculated, maybe he went after the actual mom slash wife. Like, apparently they were biffles. (laughs) That he was playing nice, like, with the kids to be like, hey, mom. (laughs) Yeah. Look how good I am with your kids. Exactly. I'm making up stories for your daughter. I'm so good with children. <laughs> so who knows? We'll never know. Pages not. are missing. Books are missing. Gotta get that time machine. And I guess it's time to follow the white rabbit. Or, wait, I guess that's a Matrix reference, huh? Is a is Alice in Wonderland reference in, in a Matrix reference. Shit's, yeah. Shit's everywhere. Okay, so the story begins with Alice, a seven-year-old girl. I'm gonna let that linger for a bit while you conjure in your mind's eye all the horny Alice in Wonderland pinup art that exists in the world. There's so much. I don't even mean the fan art drawn by random weirdos on the internet. I mean official creations from professional weirdos. Have you conjured them? It's nasty, right? My aunt's nasty. Nasty. Yeah, so Alice, second grader at large, is sitting on a sunny riverbank with her sister, who's reading a book. But Alice is bored and doesn't care about that. And this is the 1800s, so if she's not reading a book, the most interesting thing to do is, like, poke a stick in some dirt. Luckily, suddenly a white rabbit runs by, exclaiming... Hey, yo, it's me. Hoppy Hop. Ayo, it's me, Hoppy Hop. 
It's the famous phrase, the A.O. is me hoppy hop. Oh, I, hey, hey, guys, Watership Down's over here. <laughs> it's actually what I had. <laughs> the, the, maybe it's one of the rabbits from Watership Down. He's going to go warn his colony that they're all about to be murdered. <laughs> like, guys, guys, watch out for that big dude. He's going to crush you by accident. <laughs> it's Lenny! Fuck! <laughs> Uh, yeah, it'd be a very different, potentially much more interesting book if Alice followed, like, one of the Watership Down rabbits instead of going to Wonderland end up fighting that, like, fucked up warmonger rabbit. Oh, he's the one that goes, yo, people, check the time, check the date. It's <laughs> happening right now. And I'm gonna be late. <laughs> Don't hate. I <laughs> want to participate. Uh, or if he was just, like, a real rabbit, he'd just be like, I gotta go fuck! <laughs> I'm to go fuck! Um, yeah, no, he says, oh dear, oh dear, I shall be late. The, I'm late, I'm late for a very important date rhyme is a Disney creation. Just as a fun fact, it's not a product of the original text. And, uh, the rabbit pulls out a little pocket watch to check the time, which, fine, yes, is fucking adorable. I'm not made of stone. The rabbit with the tiny pocket watch is extremely cute. Anyway, Alice, as any seven-year-old would do when presented with a talking bunny rabbit, immediately runs after it down a giant rabbit hole. Somehow going from running to falling at a 90 degree angle nigh instantly and falls very slowly for a long time. In fact, she falls for so long that she gets bored again, which isn't great. Like, sure, okay, most calls to adventure start with your protagonist being bored, like that makes sense. But then the fantastical thing happens and it's also boring. You made plummeting through the depths of the earth such a chore that she's like, I'm bored again. I guess I'll do some math fucking killing me here and alice does indeed try to do some math figuring if she's fallen through the center of the earth and she must have fallen about four thousand miles maybe then she switches to geography to try and figure out where she'll pop out sort of mostly she just thinks about the words longitude and latitude she can't remember what they mean but they sure do sound nice look she's seven cut her some slack then we get the line quote there was nothing else to do so alice began talking again it's like, well, you're the one who put her in a bottomless pit, genius. Like, he's just super fun to read about. You're the one who gave her nothing to do. She talks about her cat, and is just like, If my cat was here, she could catch bats. Do cats eat bats? Cats and bats, bats and cats. How much cat could a bat cat, bat cat, bat bat? The bottomless pit is so boring, she fucking falls asleep. I mean, once you're falling, you're falling. Yeah, wake me up when I get there. She may as well just stayed with her sister, basically. He's just like, I'm going to write a fantastical story about a girl who goes on an adventure in a big hole that's so fucking dull she dozes off. It's great. Fucking finally, she lands on a pile of sticks and wakes up, and hey, there's the white rabbit still running ahead somehow. And she keeps chasing him like nothing's happened, because kids are just like that. He turns a corner, and she loses track of him in a long, fancy hall with chandeliers and doors all along the walls, except the doors are all locked. Then a table appears in the middle of the room with a key on it. The key doesn't fit into any of the doors but one. Except... Except... Except the one door it does fit into is really tiny. Alice can open it and see that it leads outside to a garden, but it's so small she can't even fit her head through it. She goes back to the table, and now it has a bottle on it with a label that says, Drink me. Yeah. <laughs> I just started like... Drink it. Now, we've had some dumbass kids and adults on Odo Lit Class who've put all kinds of stupid shit in their mouths that they've just found lying around. And to Alice's credit, 
She does at least first check to make sure it's not marked poison before blindly following directions, so like, good for her. Good job, Alice. She drinks it and starts shrinking, and briefly ponders the horrifying possibility that she might just not stop shrinking and then disappear completely, which is an extremely fucking upsetting concept to put in the head of a kid reading this book. Like, can you imagine, like, being a small child and having that thought put in your head? Like, what if you just kept shrinking and then you just didn't stop and then you just fucking disappeared? Isn't that what happened <laughs> in Willy Wonka? It might have, actually. The, the, the cowboy the, kid. Yeah, that might have. Yeah. Ugh. But she stops at just the right size to go through the door. Except. Except. Except she forgot to grab the key off the top of the table first. And now she's way too tiny to get it. So she cries. And then angrily yells at herself not to cry. Don't fucking cry! And we're told that apparently she sometimes pretends to be two people and yells at herself so hard that she just makes herself cry all over again. And also boxes her own ears when she cheats at croquet. And does this feel extremely uncomfortable to anyone else? Am I reading too much into this? It's just hard not to with the background noise of was this author pimphile having him write a small girl like yes punish yourself scream at yourself till you cry and smack yourself you're a bad little girl who cheats at games and also now you're very tiny and can't reach a key it's creepy right yes (laughs) It, it doesn't help that i know that people already jack off to like shrinking fetish shit Um, anyway, being tiny, Alice can now see a small glass box under the table, and it is a cake that says, eat me, and she's like, yeah, okay, why not? And she eats the cake, and what do you think happens, RJ? It's drugged. I mean, maybe. She vomits a lot. Oh, no. (laughs) So she eats the cake, and what happens, you're asking me? Yes. Puts on weight. I mean, I guess she puts on weight in a manner of speaking. Obesity is a real problem. What's wrong with you? They... She grows real big. Okay. And uh, she she laments that she'll never see her feet again, and will have to mail them a new pair of boots every Christmas. <laughs> and fine, that got a laugh out of me. Uh, and her head slams against the ceiling, and she's now nine feet tall. NBA, here we come. Yep. She takes the key and unlocks the door, like she should have just done in the first place, but she's stuck on the opposite end of the fetish spectrum now, and she starts crying again and yelling at herself for crying again, but because she's so big, she cries a four-inch deep pool of tears. Uh, This is the scene that people always say is like a metaphor for puberty, I think, which is extremely weird and kind of gross because she's a little kid, but I guess you could read that with like constantly being the wrong size for things or like feeling like you're not in control of your body, I guess. Yeah. It's still really uncomfortable. It is. And she's like, How is this happening? Yesterday was so normal. What's changed? Have I changed? And it's like, Kid, you followed a talking rabbit down a giant hole. Also, you ate magic food. So, like, yeah, I guess. But no, her conclusion is that these things can't be happening to Alice. So she must not be Alice. She must be some other girl. But definitely not Mabel. Because Mabel's stupid. And to prove she's not stupid, Alice, still nine feet tall, crouched outside a tiny door, tries to recite her times tables. Because math. Because fucking Lewis Carroll's a goddamn nerd. But she fucks it up real bad, saying, Let me see, four times five is twelve, and then four times six is thirteen, and four times seven is, oh dear, I shall never get to twenty at that rate. So I don't know what the fuck she's on. She's on bad times tables. 
And she tries to remember some poetry, but she can't do that either, and is forced to admit that maybe she is Mabel, which would be awful, because Mabel is poor and has shitty toys. <laughs> Priorities. And then Alice notices that while she's been freaking out about having to be poor and potentially stupid, she's magically shrunk back down to about two feet tall and can fit through the door again. Except... Except. Except the door is somehow locked again and the key's back on the table because fuck you. <laughs> Alice then slips on her tear puddle and starts swimming in it and a mouse swims by and she offends it in French by asking about cats and then offends it in English by talking about dogs. And then the mouse is like, let's swim to shore and I will tell you my life story. And I'm like, oh, please God, no. And then they do. With a whole bunch of other animals, including the dodo. That's apparently him. Yeah. And they swim ashore, and they all argue about the best way to get dry. And this is where I just start to fucking lose it. The mouse does a lecture, or it uses big words and bores everybody. Because dry? Get it? Like, dull? D- do you get it? Ha ha. Ha ha. Then the dodo's like, nah, I got a better idea. Let's do a caucus race. And as them all randomly run in a circle and stop and start whenever they want, and after a half hour, it's just like, okay, race over. And they're like, who won? And he's like, I don't know, everybody won. You get it? A caucus race? Everyone's running in circles and, and random, and it's unclear what's happening. And who won or why? Do you get it? Cause yeah. Because po- politics? I get it. Isn't it clever? And witty? Isn't Lewis Carroll such a cod? <laughs> then the mouse tells the story it promised about why it hates cats or whatever, and it's presented in like a concrete poem way, like a like a physical mouse's tale that's like all bendy. And that's how Alice like sees it when the mouse tells the poem, which is kind of cool, I guess. Then the mouse gets mad that Alice isn't paying attention. We get a stupid pun about a knot in the tail, like K-N-O-T and T-A-L-E. Alice brings up her cat again, because she hasn't yet figured out that it makes all the other small animals uncomfortable, and they all make excuses to leave, and she's alone and cries again. I mean, it's hard to hold it against her when she cries all the time, as opposed to, like, Raoul in Phantom of the Opera, because he's, like, 20-something, and she's seven, yeah, men aren't allowed to cry. No, like I said, he's in his 20s and she's seven. And? He's crying because a girl won't fuck him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she's lost in a weird magic world. So, like, I'm not going to dunk One of these is a real problem. <laughs> what I'm saying is I'm not going to dunk on a child, but still I would... Oh, like, you should dunk on a I child. I would like for something else to happen, please. Well, Bron dunked on a child. <laughs> The, the something else is the white rabbit appearing again and calling Alice Marianne and mistaking her for his housemate, I guess, and being like, go to my house and get my gloves and fan. And it's very unclear where the fuck we are spatially, but I'm pretty sure that's on purpose. But um, it does make it difficult to visualize like what the fuck is going on. She's suddenly just at a house with the name white rabbit on the front and goes in to get his stuff, but then notices a bottle next to his mirror. This bottle has absolutely no label on it, and in fact, no visual cue that it's even intended for drinking. But Alice, who just a little while ago was fastidiously checking for poison labels, is just like, Hmm, random unlabeled bottle of liquid in a stranger's house? Cheers, bitch! And she just chugs it. 
Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing to imply that this is a, it's even something you drink. It's just a, a bottle of liquid. And she grows so big she gets stuck in the house with one arm out the window and one foot sticking out the chimney. My question is, why does the rabbit have that? What was he going to do with it? You don't want to know. <laughs> Not in this magical land. Uh, the white rabbit comes home and, as you would expect, is like, what the fuck? <laughs> and he calls on some of his animal friends to try and get Alice out of his house, but she just kicks at them. Including this little lizard dude named Bill. It was supposed to be the prime minister or something. Okay. The Benjamin Disraeli. Yeah. I don't fucking know. We've talked about him before. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> then they threaten to burn her out and she sees some little pebble cakes on the floor and is like, if I eat these, I will shrink. And she does on both counts. And they almost chase her into the woods. And what the fuck was the point of any of that? Why? Why do? Why happen? Why? Because it's a wonderland. <laughs> Maybe even a winter one. In the woods, Alice, who's back to being only a couple inches tall, is like, Okay, new plan. Get back to the right size. Go to the cool garden that I saw way back. That's it. Also, I don't know how to do either of those things. Then a puppy almost crushes her to death. <laughs> and then she finds that stupid hookah-smoking caterpillar that's been parodied as, like, a fucking bong-smoking stoner approximately 10,000 times. He asks Alice who she is. And as we've seen, that's kind of a tough question for her right now. She says she knew who she was when she woke up this morning, but she's changed quite a bit since then. And Haven't we all? <laughs> Haven't we all? And the caterpillar quite reasonably is like, What? Explain yourself. And Alice says she can't explain herself because she's not herself. And I swear to God, I will reach backwards in time and throttle Lewis Carroll's smug fucking neck through sheer force of will. Anyway... Alice says being a whole bunch of different sizes in one day is very confusing. And he'll understand when he becomes a butterfly and a caterpillar says, No, it's not. And I won't because it'll be mad easy. Get good scrub. And Alice is like, fuck this guy. And it starts to walk away. And the caterpillar's like, come back. I have something important to say. And Alice turns around and he's like, bitch. <laughs> what do you think he actually says? Hippie hoppy. <laughs> Yeah. Hippie. Hippie hoppy. Hippity hoppity hoppity hop. No. He just shits some pebbles out his ass. Yeah, he just shits out some pebbles. Uh, yeah, those was rabbit old pellets. He's you know? not a rabbit, it's the caterpillar. Oh. oh wow, man. you're really not paying him any fucking attention. He goes, well, check out this trick, and he uh, shoots some string at her. Caterpillar. Yeah, don't they make silk? Isn't that a silkworm? A silkworm is a type of caterpillar. So some caterpillars do spin silk, some do not. I see. I learned a new thing. So he says, check this, right on her face. Gross. It's silk. Uh, he says, keep your temper. Which is basically... Here's some silk. Here's some silk. Which is basically the same thing as being like, bitch. And she's like, are you fucking kidding me? Is that it? And caterpillar's like, no. And then he smokes some more. Yeah, boy. <laughs> it's okay, fine. Like, that's that's also kind of funny. Then he makes her recite a poem about an old man, and then he says she did it wrong for some reason, and then finally is like, all right, what size do you want to be? And she says, not three inches, that's for sure. Hey, hey, hey. Hey. 
and the caterpillar's like, fuck you, I'm three inches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be proud, my man. It's not the size, it's how you use it. Plus, was it three like when he like scrunches up or when he stretches out? Yeah, as I mean, caterpillars do. He might be a grower, not a shower. Um, and are we talking around? I don't know. It could be thick, you know, like a tuna can. Short but stout. I don't know. <laughs> and he says, also, one side of this mushroom will make you taller, and one side will make you shorter. Bye. And Alice is like, well, which is which? Also, that doesn't even make sense. Mushrooms are round. And he's like, I said bye. And so Alice eats bits of the mushroom, and it makes her grow all weird. Like, she gets, like, a fucked up giraffe neck and shit. And so she has to experiment until finally she's back at her normal size. Everything in this book is eating and size changing. Even once we're done with the size changing, the weird fixation on food and eating... Actually, really, the size changing keeps up throughout the whole book also. And the, the fixation on food and eating never goes away. And I'm not really sure what to make of it. Like, I don't want to get stuck in the rut of, like, this is a horny thing. Especially when a lot of other stuff in, in the book is just, like, nerd shit. But I don't know what to do with the eating stuff. I don't know. You got anything? Why it's so much eating stuff? Yeah. Everyone does it. I guess. It, it's relatable to everybody, no matter your age. I guess. And eat cake. It's I just, like cake. It's just Kids a, like cake. It's just a lot of it. To the point where it seems like it means something because there's so much of it. You're supposed to do it three times a day. I suppose. And you know, when you're British, you got like tea time in between everything else. You're basically eating and drinking more than you're doing anything else during the day. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you have breakfast and he gets tea. Then you have lunch. Guess what? More tea time. Then dinner. <laughs> then bed. Well, at any rate, Alice, now once again girl-sized, sets out on part two of her quest. Get into that garden from before. She keeps some of the mushroom pieces with her and uses it to shrink right back down again to get into a tiny house that she finds, which is the house of the Duchess, who is at that moment receiving an invitation from the Queen to play croquet. Inside the house, the Duchess is making a soup full of pepper and sneezing everywhere and also tossing a baby around. She sings a nursery rhyme about beating her baby when he sneezes, and Alice is like, okay, I'm gonna just take that baby. And she does. And then the baby turns into a pig and runs off into the woods. Then sitting in a tree, she sees the Cheshire cat who grins at her and is like, shit's pretty buck wild around here, right? Yeah, they are. And Alice asks her where she should go, and the cat tells her it doesn't matter, because everywhere leads somewhere. And Alice exercises an amazing amount of restraint by not throwing a rock at it. The cat says a hatter lives over there, and hair lives over there, and they're both completely mad. And whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> And Alice is like, well... I don't want to see either of them then. And then the cast is the fucking line. You know the one. Hey, come over here. Scratch me, big daddy. <laughs> yep, that famous Alice in Wonderland line that everybody loves. Come over here and scratch me, big daddy. We're all mad here. We're all, yes, yeah, we're all mad here. I'm mad, you're mad, everybody's just tits out crazy in Wonderland. And I'm not taking it anymore! <laughs> you know, I think the Disney version would have been better. I, I have no idea who voiced the cat. I don't fucking know. That movie's from like 1950-some shit. If it was Gilbert Gottfried. 
I can't. We're all mad. <laughs> yeah, we 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 found this out in Othello when we all when we were talking about Iago. Neither of us can do a Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> I'll tell you what. That's not any better. <laughs> no, it wasn't any better. I know. That would have been. That's any better. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a joke for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're all fucking mad. See you at the croquet match. This exposition was fucking pointless, like so much in this book, because the hatter and the hair are in the same goddamn location anyway. And then it slowly disappears until only its stupid smile is left. Alice goes to the hare's house, and he's having the mad tea party, and the hatter's there, and also a dormouse who keeps falling asleep. And the hare and the hatter are both assholes, and they say mean things to Alice, because she showed up uninvited and sat down, even though there's only three of them, and they have a bunch of places set and plenty of room. And the mad hatter asks her how a raven is like a writing desk, and she says she thinks she can guess it, but then they get into a fucking irritating argument about semantics and saying what you mean, so we never get the answer to the riddle, though people have long since reverse-engineered it. How's a raven like a writing desk, RJ? They're made of carbon. That's bullshit. What do you mean that's bullshit? That's, bull, that's bullshit. You could do better. So what do you mean? How are they uh, similar? Made of star stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Things that exist Thanks, on same Earth. Things Carl Sagan. Yeah. All right, Megan. How is a raven like a writing desk? Edgar Allan Poe wrote on both. He never wrote on a raven. Well, you say wrote on like he wrote. You're on who said wrote on. Well, then it's like wrote on as in nope. about. No, uh, he did not write about a writing desk. <laughs> well, it's wordplay semantics shit. I'm not the one who fucking came up with it. I just read about it. Had Edgar Allan Poe written The Raven at this point? That's why I said that people uh, have reversed engineered it. Uh, the riddle was never supposed to have an answer. Yeah. Oh, uh, they're both made of carbon. Yeah, people come up with it after the fact. Yeah, I bet you did have an answer. It was never meant to have an answer. Yeah, he's a smart man of science. <laughs> Him and I, we see eye to eye. Yeah? Yeah. You, you really want to align yourself with the potential child toucher? You gotta separate what he did on his private time from his acumen in science. Do you want to say we see eye to eye with the child toucher? Oh, we were about the same height, so <laughs> I mean, we do. Yeah. And no one ever said he touched the kids. He maybe photographed them. We got proof of that. He was taking nudie pics of kids. You want to hang out with a dude who takes nudie pics of kids? Even if I didn't say seeing eye to eye with him on matters of science isn't me hanging out with him. You want to play Scrabble with him? And he's like, hey, man, I'm going to be late to this Scrabble game. I got to take some aesthetic pictures of naked children. Yeah, I could do wars with friends with him and beat his ass. <laughs> I got I to gotta cut this game of words with friends short. I got to go take some pictures of naked kids in my friend's garden. So you don't want to beat him? I want to beat him. The, uh, the Hatter has a broken watch that only tells the day and the month. They argue about how time isn't real. Which, yeah, I guess that's a mood these days. And then also his watch has butter in it. I don't know why the fuck his watch has butter in it. The hair just keeps saying that it was the best butter. I hate this so fucking much. The Dormouse tries to tell a story about sisters living at the bottom of a syrup well. But Alice and the Hatter can't stop bitching at each other. 
Then more puns. Then Alice starts to say, I don't think, to which the Hatter replies, then you shouldn't talk. And Carol gets his allotted one chuckle per chapter or so from me. And that Alice is like, fuck it, I'm out, and leaves. She's door in a tree, goes through it, and thank fucking God she's back in the hall of doors. She eats some mushrooms, gets the thing with the key, goes through the door. Christ, it's like we're playing an old point-and-click adventure game from Sierra or something. God. Leisure Suit Larry. Yeah, we're playing Leisure Suit Larry in Wonderland. Love that guy. That's probably a thing. Alright, she's in the damn garden. The king and the queen of hearts are there. The courtiers are playing cards. Everything's puns, because obviously everything's puns. There are gardeners painting white roses red, and Alice interrupts their work. And so the queen screams for Alice to be beheaded, and Alice is like, No, that's stupid! And the queen is like, Well, I don't have an argument against that. Let's play croquet. And they do, except, you know, it's Wonderland. And so that means everything's bullshit. And so the mallets are flamingos, and the balls are hedgehogs, and everything's fucking moving, and the queen keeps ordering everyone to be executed, and so it's not a great time. The Cheshire Cat appears, or, well, its head appears, and Alice is like, this sucks! And the king sees the cat and is like, wow, I don't like that, get rid of it. And the queen yells for the cat to be beheaded, and everyone has to stop and ponder the semantic possibility of beheading a cat that's just a head, while I put the book down and go do something, literally anything else. Then the cat disappears, they stop fucking caring, and play more croquet. Then the queen's like, hey, you ever meet the mock turtle? And Alice is like, no? And the queen's like, well, now you will. Here he is. Well, the king pardons everyone she condemned to death because nothing means anything. That's the point that Carol's making, I assume? Nothing means anything? Here's a mock turtle? You may be wondering what the fuck a mock turtle is. Are you got any idea what a mock turtle is? It's kind of like a mock tail. So it's a turtle without alcohol. Yes. Boom. It's, it's alcohol-free. It's a virgin turtle. Boom. And it kind of looks like, at a certain angle, Mitch McConnell. <laughs> but then, from the other side, it kind of looks like Dana Carvey. It's unfortunate. It's a, it's a... Turtle, turtle. Yeah, wow. Wow. <laughs> That's a fucking timely little reference there. <laughs> yeah. What was that from? You don't even know what you're doing. I know it was Dana Carvey and it was Turtle, Turtle. Yeah, tur- Turtle. The Turtle Club. Fuck. Um, the Master of Disguise. There you go. Fuck me. Alright. I don't think I've ever seen the movie. You just, I just know the ad. Stupid ad. Yeah. Alright, let's play a fun game. How old is that movie? <laughs> Master of Disguise. Yep. 2002. So that's a nice, fresh 18-year-old reference. Oh man, that means I could take nude pictures of that movie. <laughs> that's illegal. <laughs> yes. The Queen tells us that uh, mock turtle is what mock turtle soup is made from. And so mock turtle soup is a real thing. As the name implies, it's imitation turtle soup, and, quote, it often uses brains and organ meats, such as calf's head or calf's foot, to duplicate the texture and flavor of the original's turtle meat. Yum. No Um, shark fin soup. 
I mean, not that eating a turtle sounds super great to me either, but whatever. I'm not here to culturally step on anyone's toes. Uh, now, when you have turtle soup, do you eat it right out of the shell? I don't know. Is that like the gourmand way of doing it? No, I don't want to think about eating a turtle. I'll have turtle on the half shell, please. <laughs> and tonight we have a fine variety. You could choose some Donatello. Oh, no. Well, this is no, this is mock turtle, so it's, you know, calf head or brain or, oh, jeez. So, obviously, uh, a mock turtle is not a real animal, but in the book, it is like a fucked up turtle with a cow's head that cries all the time. That is definitely, yeah, that is, that is on here. It's getting picked up. Just looking at me. Yeah, okay. He's looking at you. You're doing that. <laughs> How do I tell him no? Because right, so, you're such right. a sucker. Just put, him on, the, put him on the yeah. futon. I'm done. <laughs> you gotta carry the show. Oh my god. Give him to me. No. Give him to me. He's nice. His name's Goodwill Gorgu. You can't just name all the cats Gorgu. Okay, Gorgu. Everyone can't be Gorgu now. Shut the fuck up, Gorgu. I'm turning Gorgu. It's just never going to end. I'm fucking trapped in Wonderland in hell. Fucking RJ's nursing the cat. You can continue. You don't need me. I do. Yeah, I'm nursing him. Hey, Gorgu, suck on this tit. It's a turtle with a cow's head. It cries all the time, except it's apparently not actually sad. It just thinks it's sad. Whatever that means. It means it has depression. You can't just scream from over there. (laughs) It may be battling... A real mental disorder, Meg. This is what they're saying, okay? I'm just saying what they're saying. And then the queen's just like, yeah, you gotta meet this fucking dude. (laughs) You gotta meet this pile of meat. Essentially. Meet my meat. (laughs) And the mock turtle tells Alice that he learned a whole bunch of things in school. And his teacher was a tortoise because he taught us. Hey Meg, why do they call him Turtlenecks? Because he's the net. I don't. I don't know. I hate this fucking book. Is Gorgu still being too loud? <laughs> His name isn't Gorgu. You look at him. You tell him he's not Gorgu. His name isn't Gorgu. He's probably several agonizing puns later. The mock turtle just keeps heaving sobs while showing Alice a dance called the Lobster Quadrille. Wonder why that didn't make it into the Disney movie. A taxidermy nightmare cow turtle doing a stupid little dance for Alice, except it won't stop sobbing the entire time. It sounds like a scene from a fucking early David Lynch movie. Everybody do the lobster tonight. (laughs) Clap, clap, clap. (laughs) Clap, clap, clap. He said doing the YMCA, your little jazz fingers do clap, 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 like a little crabby. Except it's a lobster. Is there a difference? Between a lobster and a crab? They're delicious with butter. You had to think about it. 
You had to sit there and think about it. Alice says some more poems that everyone says she's doing wrong again, and then the mock turtle cries a song about soup. Thankfully, we leave him behind. Alice goes to sit in on a trial happening where the knave of hearts is the defendant in chains accused of stealing tarts. The king is the judge and the jury is a bunch of adorable animals. The white rabbit... Who are goats? No! (laughs) 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 Yeah, for anyone listening who doesn't know what the fuck Gorku is in reference to, this is just in fucking scruple. Because we can't say what the fuck Gorgu is. Because it's a spoiler. So we're just saying a word. We're just saying a real dumb word. So. <laughs> my, the jury of my peers is Gorgu. <laughs> Wheezy Breezy. That also means nothing. No one knows what Weezy Breezy is. No, everyone knows no Weezy one. Breezy. No one knows Weezy Breezy. Hey, Meg, before this comes out, can you post an image of Weezy Breezy? Can you even still find images of Weezy Breezy? Can you find images of Weezy Breezy? And what would be my third juror? Uh, Are you going to have to really try to pick 12 jurors? That's uh, just my third. I only need three. Mm, David Lynch. <laughs> that's quite the lineup there. An asthmatic bear mascot, David Lynch, and uh, Gorgu. <laughs> <laughs> so the White Rabbit is apparently emceeing the event, because, you know, that's the thing that trials have. They MC. Hey, yo, guys, guess what? Open an argument! <laughs> and uh, he reads a poem about the Knave of Hearts stealing tarts. First witness called up is the Hatter, and while he says a bunch of dumb shit, Alice notices that she started to grow again. She's, she's a grower, not a shower. They call up the cook after the Hatter. The cook says more dumb shit, and Alice keeps growing, and this is going to be a metaphor for her outgrowing Wonderland's bullshit, because after the cook, she's the next witness called to take the stand, and she, she barely fits. The king asks her what she knows about the case, and she's like, literally nothing. And the White Rabbit's like, yeah, that's not really that important. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> True. This is a stinging indictment on the court system in Alice in Wonderland. Anyway, I've got an important piece of evidence in this letter. And then he reads a fucking gibberish letter and Alice is just like, This is stupid! This is all fucking stupid! You're all goddamn stupid! And the queen is like, Off with her head! Except Alice is huge again and is like, Fuck this! And he wakes up next to her sister by the riverbank. And she tells her sister about her dream, and her sister says, Okay, weirdo, go inside. But then sits outside for a while, thinking about what Alice has told her, and being like, Man, my sister's fucking bizarre. Maybe we should get her looked at. The end. And so when they look at him, they gotta take pictures? No! <laughs> God, no. That's Alice in Wonder. In terms of adaptations, um, Jesus Christ, where does one begin? So, the first full major production of Alice in Wonderland books was, uh, as you mentioned, during Carol's lifetime, and that was in 1886, a musical in London's West End by H. Seville Clark and Walter Slaughter. That's quite the name. 
Willie Slots. Good old Walt Slaughter. Nah, Willie. How do you get Willie from Walter? Willie's William. Yeah, I know, but you could do a Walter. No, you can't. Yeah, you can't. No, it's Walt. Yeah. He wasn't Willie White. Could have been. He just chose not to. No, Willie is William. Get your shit together. I found my fourth juror. <laughs> yeah, what is it? Is chili it chili, chili Willie the Willy. penguin? Yeah. <laughs> David Lynch, Chili Willie, Corku, and Wheezy Breezy. You know, if I need a fifth one, what was that, like German penguin? Pingu? Pingu? Yeah, Pingu. German. I what is think. he? I, I don't know. I, two guess gonna, I guess we're going to find out. Um, Carol wrote in his diary that he did enjoy it. Chili Willie? Yes. She's like, I fucking love Chili Willie. I'm going to take nude pictures of him. Uh, so, for penguins, <laughs> is it also a pink rocket? I've yeah. never seen a penguin dick before. Listen, you know, are we, are we going to Google penguin dick? Morgan Freeman didn't cover this in the March. He did not. All right, where's a penguin dick? I need to see what it looks like. Have you ever seen a penguin's penis? Barstool Sports. There <laughs> <laughs> you go. This is just a penguin with a human penis on Reddit. <laughs> Why is this New York Post article called Penguins Might Be Nature's Most Perverted Animals? They do anal on the first date. I don't think you can see a penguin's dick. No? No. Alright. I don't think it's possible. Here's a picture of two penguins fucking. Wait, wait, did you read the article? What? Why are they the most perverted? No, I I, I didn't. I guess because it has a cloaca. Or cloaca. Um, so, Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so then there's, the, of course, the Disney movie, which has most things you think of when we think of Alice in Wonderland. The Tim Burton CGI Nightmare from 2010, which I was forced to see against my will. I was dragged to it by friends. Under what circumstances did you go see it? With the person I was dating at the time. Did you like the movie? I don't remember hating it. I don't remember particularly liking it. I mean, Mad Hatter's a weird, creepy, white-faced man-child who does a break dance at the end. Mediocre. Medi- yeah, mediocre. Then I made another one. I did not see the second one. So it that movie does pull on common themes of aging up Alice and the whole, like, we have to go back to Wonderland and, like, that Wonderland is, like, degraded or whatever. Um, every fucking adaptation that's like, what if Wonderland, but twisted? What if Wonderland, but dark and fucked up? What if Alice, but titties? That's not the Tim Burton one, that's just, like, every other fucking adaptation. A lot of comics that are just, what if Alice, but titties? The famous Batman villain, the Mad Hatter, whose shtick is just that he does mind control. And he just dresses like the Mad Hatter. Because reasons. You're reading about the penguins being perverts, aren't you? Yes. Resident Evil famously has a lot of references to Alice in Wonderland. There are these books called The Fucking Looking Glass Wars that was like, Alice was actually a refugee from another world where the Wonderland is a serious place where... They're fighting a war, and imagination is like a power. And Rose the Red did murders, and the 
Mad Hatter, his name was Mad had Mad Hattigan or Had Madigan. I remember I read this a while ago. It came out in like 2006. And he was her royal bodyguard and he had big swords on his hands. <laughs> Alright, Meg, so do you, do you want to know about the penguins? It sounds like I don't. Well, there's a couple different things here. One is some penguins towards the end of the year their nests start to get flooded, and so they need to build, like, a barrier of stones to, like, protect the egg. Yeah. And some of the penguins turn to prostitution to get the stones. Oh, yeah. Okay, I knew that. That's a known thing. One one uh, aspiring penguin in particular, in an hour, swipes 62 stones through sex. Wow. But then also... That's a busy penguin. Some penguins are referred to as gangs of hooligan cocks. They resort to, quote, constant acts of depravity that runs the gamut of masturbation, recreational sex, and homosexual behavior, as well as gang rape, necrophilia, and pedophilia. And they point out when it comes to the necrophilia, these aren't penguins that whoa, recently whoa, okay, died. Okay, okay. Wait, wait. Yeah. These aren't penguins that just recently died. These are penguins that have been frozen in the water and washed back up and they fuck them again and push them back in the water to see them again in a few years. You st- why do they put like it's they, they start with like masturbation why is that put on the same level as fucking a waterlogged frozen penguin corpse and also there's a lot of penguins who are quote engaged in sodomy presumably that's consensual <laughs> one scientist wrote quote there seems to be no crime too low for these penguins <laughs> So here's the thing. You know what? I'm taking it back. I want my entire jury to be penguins because nothing's wrong for them. You know what they say, Meg? If you like something, fuck it. Throw it in the ocean. It'll wash back up and you can fuck it again in a few years. Isn't Earth a wonderland? In 2009, Sci-Fi had an original miniseries called Alice. It meant to capitalize around the success of their other bullshit miniseries, Tin Man, which was off uh, Wizard of Oz. I've seen both of them when they came out, because I was watching a lot of sci-fi back then, because I had very poor taste. Hey, Meg. Yeah. Tin Man. Yeah. Is it silver or flesh-colored? It was flesh-colored. Whoa. Alice is a grown-ass woman. I don't know. Does he come oil? Well, of course he's cut. He was a woodsman. Alice is oil. Grown, yes, Alice is grown ass woman in Wonderland's like a casino underground, like a resistance or some shit. All I remember about it is that Tim Curry was in it for like two seconds, and that Mad Hatter was now a pretty boy with guy liner, and he falls in love with Alice. That's the thing that happens. Also, I remember there was a movie called Malice in Wonderland, which was what if Wonderland. But everyone was a shitty imitation Guy Ritchie gangster. I've seen these movies. I don't know why. I just have. Uh, Tom Waits has a full album called Alice, released in 2002, made up of songs written for a play called Alice. Alice was ranked number two in Metacritic's Top 30 Albums of 2002. I've only listened to a bit of it so far, but, you know, it's Tom Waits. If you're in Tom Waits, seems like good shit. 
Uh, apparently, the musical production itself is considered to be a cult favorite. I haven't been able to find out a ton about it, apart from what you would expect, that it's dark and fucking weird. And I guess that's the thing of it, huh? Like, they're all dark and fucking weird. Which, which brings me all the way back to my original point from the beginning, that there's just something about Alice in Wonderland. No one can make a normal fucking adaptation of it. Even if it is like a weird, silly, doofy, children's bullshit thing, even if it does have creepy moments that we've discussed, it activates people's latent horniness, and I don't know why. It turns them into penguins. Why does it bring out people's inner penguin, RJ? Because Lewis Carroll knew exactly what he was doing. Takes one <laughs> to know one. Fucking weird shit. And that brings us to the part of the show that we always get to, and that is Hey RJ. Sup. Alice in Wonderland. Good? Bad? Gorgu? Gorgu? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck this fucking episode. Six Gorgus out of five Gorgus. <laughs> We're gonna go through this whole fucking thing and never actually have to say what Gorgu is. What do you mean? Everyone knows what Gorgu is. No. It's the Gabagool. <laughs> I'm sure there are plenty of people who walk this earth who are happily oblivious. Have no fucking clue what Gorgu is. And they're going to be like, you're going to make me look this up. All right, I'm going to give you something. And every time we say Gorgu, I'm you put this instead. not going to put that much work into this. Paul Hollywood. <laughs> so. Alice in Wonderland, what, a, what an acid trip. What a fun time. What a romp. Coming of age, tour de force. <laughs> Lives on to this day. In Disney form, no less. Mm. The highest of praises. When I was a young boy, I thought, I hope one day I achieve as much as Alice did. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ. Alice in the ground and her adventures there. Yeah. yeah. Good or bad? I hate this book. I hate what it's turned into. I hate what people make of it. I hate what it always was. I hate how smug and clever it thinks it is. I hate how tedious it is. I hate this book. I hate it in the morning. I hate it in the evening. I hate it <laughs> at supper time. That doesn't fucking rhyme, and asshole. When it's on a bagel, I can hate it anytime. <laughs> um. No, I hate it in the morning, I hate it in the evening, I hate it when I'm reading, I hate it when I'm speaking. That doesn't rhyme either. Yeah, ing. (laughs) (laughs) Boom! I was at least doing the pizza bagel. (laughs) Is some of my hatred potentially disproportionate, unwarranted, and directed at a book intended for children? Maybe? But it's a fucking annoying book. It's maybe kind of funny sometimes. I just don't think it's enjoyable to read. I think for a kid reading it, it would be just, like, super annoying. And, like, the references and stuff are gonna go over your head. And I think for an adult, it's just aggravating. (laughs) I get no enjoyment from it. Apart from, like, the three times it made me laugh. And the rest of the time it just pissed me off and every way that it exists now in the current pop cultural consciousness just annoys the shit out of me 
and yes, I could just let people enjoy things. And it's like, yeah, I'm not going to walk up to someone and, and tell them not to enjoy it. But in the back of my head, I'm just going to be like, Ugh. also just stop being horny. Just stop being horny. So yes, Alice in Wonderland, bad. I don't like the text on its own. And also I think it's retroactively bad because of all of the weird, terrible, horny energy that it has brought into the world afterwards. Also, personally, I think the dude was probably a pedophile. <laughs> I know, we report and you decide, but that's what I think. And that'll about do it for this episode of Odo Lit Class. If you like the show and you like hearing the things that we say about penguin sex crimes... <laughs> Consider a subscri- You know, maybe we should let the penguins loose on old Lewis Carroll. What, because they would fuck him? Yeah. <laughs> because they're not discerning and will fuck anything, even if it's been dead a very long time. Yeah. This is a horrible line of thought. Um, Gotta punish him. Potentially, maybe, if you find him guilty. Who is on Lewis Carroll's jury? All of you who are listening. You let us know what your verdict is, and then we'll decide the punishments. And you can do that on social media, I guess. Um, at Megan. No, please. At don't, Megan. Please don't. At the show. Uh, consider just subscribing, leaving us a rating or a review. Yeah, just spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell your family. <laughs> Tell your family. <laughs> Lewis Carroll. <laughs> Guilty, innocent. Should penguins fuck his corpse? Yeah. <laughs> Listen to this podcast and decide. Should penguins fuck his corpse? He was just trying to figure out what makes a girl boss a girl boss. <laughs> the hunt for the ultimate girl boss. Don't listen to this podcast. I don't even want to fucking listen to this podcast and I do this podcast. <laughs> uh, fuck. Fo- follows all places. I, I said all the links about things and, and shit at the beginning of the episode. Send us stuff for Q&A. Uh, the next episode will be on December 24th. Good God. Um, and it will be the last one of the year before our big winter rest. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We are so sorry. <laughs> we love you. Bye. <laughs>